Hello, everyone. You are listening to CCG Global Dialogue podcast with Dr. Henry Wang Huiyao, founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, uh, good evening and good morning. I'm sure uh, Professor Hansen is good morning for you, and welcome to CCG China and the World uh, Dialogue uh, live from CCG head office here in Beijing. And thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is actually live, and we have uh, many uh, uh, audience online. And this is a, a series episode that uh, we are uh, organized for the last several months. So we're very pleased to have Professor uh, Vanessa Hansen with us today. So this virtual program is a part of the uh, CCG China and the World uh, uh, webinar series, seeking to engage global thought leaders and uh, well-known scholars on topics connecting uh, current situation and of course the, uh, uh, the situation of, uh, of globalization and also with China uh, rose in it. I want to first introduce uh, Professor uh, Hansen. And Professor Hansen is a world-renowned historian and sinologist and has been a professor at the Yale since 1998. Uh, she has been a great friend of China, having lived in China for six plus years. Uh, actually, uh, Professor Hansen is interested uh, in Chinese history and civilization, and has taught and also uh, visited institutions in China, including uh, Peking University and also Xiamen University. I, I also uh, saw a, a report uh, of, you, of the lecture you gave at the Peking University about two years ago. And she was also a visiting scholar of the University of Birmingham uh, in, a, in the United Kingdom and also College of France uh, in Paris. Uh, one of the things I think uh, Professor uh, Hansen has made a major contribution to the study of world history, uh, traditional China and world history. Uh, her books on those subjects have gained international recognition, including the famous The, the Silk Road, A New History, for which she was awarded with the Gustavi Remis International Book Prize and International Convention of Asian Scholars Book Prize in 2013. So quite a, quite a, a great book. And most recently, uh, the year 1000, when Explorer connected the world and globalization began, uh, which actually will be the topic uh, of our discussion today. I have a, I have a copy of, uh, of your uh, book that uh, in Chinese, but hopefully going to publish uh, very soon. So this is a, a sample book I have. Uh, but, I, but, I, but as uh, Professor uh, Hansen knows that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the study of globalization is really uh, gets a very uh, 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 you know, get a lot of attention, and of course, uh, we are very pleased to invite you to be a guest uh, for for our think tank, you know, Center for China and Globalization, which you are a uh, 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 very uh, well-known uh, scholars on on globalization subject, and particularly you have extended the the length of the globalization, the origin of that, 500 years uh, before Columbus, uh, which is uh, I think uh, a great discovery uh, on itself as well. And, uh, and also that uh, we felt that globalization uh, is really has changed in the world uh, uh, beyond recognition. And actually, uh, the, uh, we are now at a crossroad. You know, we have a deglobalization, we have a globalization, we have a, uh, many, uh, many uh, uh, new, new trends, and, and, and also 
uh, how we're going to uh, uh, meet the challenge of a future globalization. So, so by looking at the history, by looking at some of the fundamentals that you've been discovering uh, in your book, uh, is really fascinating to talk about. So perhaps uh, I know you are also very uh, 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 proficient in, in Mandarin. Uh, perhaps you could introduce a bit <laughs> to us in Mandarin and then to say hi to uh, to the largely audience in China, but also uh, other parts of the world. So, so Professor Hansen, uh, uh, you can give us a few words. Thank you. Many thanks to this invitation. Yeah, this is my morning, and uh, this is evening to Chinese audience to talk about my book. Previously, we believe that we have uh, sent emails exchanges talking on uh, the topics to discuss in this uh, dialogue. Well, actually, we are all the products of globalization. You been visiting as a scholar and a student in Canada and the UK. I've been studying in uh, Taiwan province, Japan and China mainland. So when we were young, we received a very great opportunity going abroad to study and work. When you mentioned my book, which was featured by the greatest conclusion, is about the beginning of uh, globalization has been way more advanced versus the uh, well-recognized conclusion, which is determined by the great discovery of uh, Colombia. And I agree to some extent with this uh, conclusion, but if we took 1500 as a start, Actually, the history of globalization started around Europe, but my book would also spare the attention to China and Polynesia and many other continents. And they actually have started the globalization way earlier than 1500. So really appreciate this opportunity talking with you in this dialogue. So actually, uh, it's really uh, fascinating. We've been uh, talking to uh, many uh, international uh, opinion leaders, uh, well-known scholars, uh, 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 politicians, you know, about this subject of globalization. And, uh, and you actually uh, not only studied the history of, of, of globalization, you know, and you made a contribution to, to study that with all the uh, uh, evidence that uh, you've been discovering and connecting them uh, with, with very uh, 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 logic uh, uh, behind that. But also, uh, you, you are very familiar with China. Uh, uh, for example, you 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 talk about this Quanzhou, uh, which you see, you know, about uh, in the Song Dynasty. There's uh, so many <laughs> uh, international, uh, uh, you know, migrant and also uh, different uh, merchant and uh, 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 all kind of us people come to Quanzhou. And I actually visit the museum in Quanzhou. You can see all the evidence, you know, people from Arab, from Middle East, from uh, uh, India, from uh, other parts of the world. So. So it's really fascinating to look at that history. So, uh, so the the globalization actually we are we are uh, we are uh, we are you know we've been benefiting enormously, uh, as you rightly said. We are product of the globalization. You know, our experience has has uh, luckily brought us to to different parts of the world. So we have this uh, a global view to look at the world now. But 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 what's the what's the reason that uh, uh, that you 
you know, really go into this uh, uh, study of this globalization. Maybe you can give us some uh, uh, your, your your background and and also how you come to this uh, uh, conclusion that like Vikings, like uh, the people in Chanzhou, or, or or how they really move around the world, you know, around Europe, one thousand, you know, a thousand years ago, which is a fascinating history. Well, I, I come to globalization from the Silk Road, as yes. you said, and um, in the my Silk Road book focused, of course, on China, what's now China and now Central Asia. And um, the uh, year, often histories of the Silk Road end around the year 1000. Um, that's when the cave in Dunhuang closes. And, um, you know, there's a theory from a professor at Beida named uh, Rong Xinjiang, who uh, has proposed that the people living in Dunhuang heard about the fall of Khotan, Hetian, um, to the armies of the Karakhanid, so the Heihan, and uh, their response to that invasion was to close the document cave. Um, not everybody agrees with that theory, but it's a, a known fact that the Karakhanids do um, take Khotan in the year 1000. And, Another event, a key event in the year 1000 is the um, Treaty of Chanyuan between the Liao and the Song. And the, um, so when I was finishing the Silk Road book, I knew about those two events and I knew that the Vikings had touched down in Canada really probably around exactly the year 1000. And I wondered if there was any connection among those three events. And the, um, I mean, after, you know, spending five years looking around, um, I concluded that a lot of the world is undergoing the same process in the year 1000, that regions are getting bigger, people are encountering people from other places and uh, from other regions, and that it's having a profound effect on people. Uh, and there's, there are earlier examples of contacts among people in different countries, extensive contacts. Uh, the Silk Road is one example. The Roman Empire um, has trade contacts with India. But in the year 1000, more, much of the world is affected by these new contacts. And so that's how I ended up with this topic and, and, and this idea. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really uh, great. And uh, actually, you, in your previous book, you know, it's also a masterpiece, I, I think, the Silk Road, a new history with uh, documents. Basically, you describe the re remarkable finds that uh, revolutionized, I think, also our understanding of the, uh, of the trade routes of the Silk Road. So it's really in this book that you, you, you explored eight sites on, on, on that, uh, along, the, along the roads from Xi'an to Samarkand uh, and to the Middle East, uh, where merchants, uh, uh, envoys, uh, pilgrims, and the travelers. Uh, mixed with uh, cosmopolitan community with different religions and explain how this very modest uh, commercial artillery become the world most famous cultural superhighway. So probably we could say, uh, even though the globalization begins a thousand years ago, or you know, a year thousand, one thousand, uh, but also probably the spirit uh, or the or the uh, the uh, uh, the ID, you know, maybe some uh, original, uh, you know, culture uh, of the globalization already began when when the Silk Road uh, started uh, already. I mean, that's where people starting to move around, at least uh, uh, culturally, spiritually, and contact-wise. Uh, would you would you say that the Silk Road maybe also uh, has a has a huge impact on the globalization uh, as well? 
I think the Silk Road, what, what's going on in China and Central Asia in the Silk Road, um, there are parallels in other parts of the world. Um, the, like Europe, we know less about Africa and America because we don't have written sources um, from those places or, or very minimal written sources. Um, but the impact, I would say in the period before the year 1000, not that many people are affected. They may meet um, someone from another place. And, and people in China, I mean, you know, all, all historical processes, especially when you study China, there's no beginning, right? You, you say, this is when things begin. And someone says, no, 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 it began earlier than you think. <laughs> there's, I have evidence showing that there's even earlier uh, evidence of this phenomenon that you're talking about. Um, and I think with the Silk Road, there's a shipwreck called Beilitung. That's a, it's an, it's a, an, it's a um, African or an Indonesian boat that was found in the Java Sea near off the coast of Indonesia in a place called um, Belitung. And it was carrying Chinese ceramics. So, the, and the date of the ship is 826, 827. And we know that because there's a Chinese coin, sorry, there's a Chinese, a pot with the date written in Chinese um, on it. And it was carrying 60,000 ceramics. 60,000, that's 826. That's already mass production. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about in my book. That's a very early example. Um, 100 years later, there's another shipwreck and it's carrying 600,000 Chinese pots in a single ship. So, you know, yes, there's some evidence of it earlier, but I bring up those two examples because those are examples of how shipping and, and ocean travel is on a completely different scale than overland trade. And the Silk Road is mostly about the period before 1000, mostly about overland trade. And there's a constraint on overland trade that uh, animals can carry only so much. We're in a period, right? This is a, there are no machines, right? There's no mechanization. So you have a group of, I mean, I think everyone's mental image of the Silk Road is of camels. Um, in fact, um, the the most of the trade, and we know this from Chinese documents, is um, on horseback or on donkeys or in carts. And you're only, it's only on camels when you're going through the desert, uh, through sand. And if it, people have a choice, they avoid the sand and they go on roads. So I think there's a, a real change in the year 1000 because we see this shift to sea travel that, um, People have been on the sea a little bit before 1000, but in the year 1000, we can see in these different places, the Vikings, the Polynesians, the Chinese, we can see this, um, the beginnings of really long distance sea travel. Mm -hmm. That's really, uh, yeah, I think that's a, great, a very interesting uh, uh, comparison because uh, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, Sogro maybe had some element of that, but actually one massive, uh, 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 globalization. I mean, at, at least with the with the ocean uh, uh, travel stat, one uh, one one merchant and uh, uh, people starting to moving around. That's really brought uh, uh, globalization into its real uh, real uh, you know on a stage and and uh, accelerate that. So that that's really uh, uh, interesting to to know. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad that you have done this uh, study and then uh, you know really uh, you know evidently. Uh, you know, uh, expanded globalization scope uh, one year, 1,000. So 
So now we, we had this globalization going on and uh, you know, we, we had a lot of uh, uh, globalization uh, uh, basically for the last uh, century, we, we see how this globalization really uh, changed the world uh, with all this modern technology and everything. So, so in terms of the global, uh, globalization, what, so how, how do you think of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the globalization main characteristic? Maybe before it was trade, you know, I mean, that was really one of the key characteristic or the, or the, or the religion, uh, or the, or the uh, culture, uh, uh, you know, uh, exchanges and things like that, and uh, all this overseas student and uh, or Xuanzang, you know, or went to India or, or, uh, or even during the Tang Dynasty, uh, we had the Japanese student come to China. So, so how do you see the, you know, the, the phases of globalization, I mean, even though if it's a thousand years or, or even longer than that, you have well, any? Yeah, I, 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 it's funny. I was going to ask you the same question okay. <laughs> about the, the phases of globalization. Uh, I think that, um, and I was thinking about going, starting now and going back in time, so that um, I, 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 the consensus for um, that among historians is that the current phase of globalization that we're in starts in the 1970s and the 1980s. I don't know if you would agree with that. And um, the key thing that observers look at is space-time compression. And so that you can get on an airplane and be somewhere. You can travel from New York to Beijing in a day, right? Mm -hmm. So the space and the time have been compressed. You're taking a journey that been, if you had traveled by boat could take, um, you know, months uh, is suddenly uh, reduced to um, one day. And so that's something that I think is the hallmark of the phase of globalization we're living in now. And the, um, and I think there's, so that's something that's new, this tech, this airplanes, you know, this kind of airplanes and computers um, and the ability, the fact that you and I are having this conversation in real time, seeing each other, right? This is a new, these are new things that did not happen in the past. Um, but so that's the first phase I would see. Is that the phase that you see? That would you start in the seventies? Yeah, no, I I I, I agree. I, I think that uh, uh, you're right. I, I I I as we discussed, I think we we have seen some uh, uh, you know the the uh, sparks and uh, maybe some uh, uh, some preliminary phenomena I mean, during the public soak road. But I think. When you talk about uh, uh, when globalization started a thousand years, that's where really people starting to move around, and then uh, globalization started to 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 uh, to you know pick up the uh, the momentum. But uh, of course, then we have the Columbus uh, 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 discovered the uh, the Americans. But even we have a Zheng He, you know, the Chinese uh, <laughs> marshal who has uh, uh, you know led uh, seven times expedition to. Uh, to to the Southeast Asia or even to to as far as African, so that's where all, all the things started to 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 move around and they carry uh, uh, you know all the all the all the, all the products uh, seeds or even even uh, even maybe diseases starting to move around. But 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 I I I would say that uh, that globalization uh, uh, has been really accelerated, uh, you know, since the Industrial Revolution. Where I think, uh, as you said, the technology even more so brought the uh, globalization to a much faster pace and speed. And uh, where we got at today now, we're, we're simultaneously uh, connected and uh, with with uh, with the modern technology. So, so that has brought a lot of uh, changes we are we are facing, and also that what all the 
all the all the big globalization probably as well. So so that's a bit uh, a bit bit of the contemporary time. But but even look at the history. I I think it's fascinating to 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 trace those uh, uh, origin at uh, where 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 those uh, things made beneficial to the mankind that we still was our study today. I I, I hope. Oh, I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, so maybe we'll go back to the to the to the history then. So you you, you know, a th you know, over a thousand years ago, you know, maybe when 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 uh, when when the when the uh, uh, where they welcome all the uh, foreign uh, uh, merchant and and uh, travelers. So at that time, uh, Confucianism already prevailed in in China. And uh, so, what do you think of the the the, the Confucianism, the, the the impact on on the Song Dynasty, and also from historical perspective, you, uh, you, 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 you know how how the, the the globalization actually has a huge impact in in China, as as you said in your book. Uh, uh, at that time, probably China has already has a 100 million uh, population, and the whole world probably is only have 250 or even. <laughs> so China is already quite a big portion of uh, of the global population. You know, over 40, 30, 40 percent. So, right, so that, absolutely. Yeah, so that was really people don't probably realize that history, and uh, so maybe you can give a bit of description of of your study of the uh, Song Dynasty and uh, what's the uh, historical uh, impact or, or place that uh, it has at that time, uh, and regarding the, the globalization, that a lot of things you mentioned in your book as well. well. One of the things that I say in the book about the Song Dynasty is that. Uh, China, Song Dynasty China is the most globalized place on earth at the time. And the reason I say that is that so many people living in China, especially on the coast, that's still true today, right? That people on the coast are, of China are much more affected by um, these international trends than people in the interior. But people, and Quanzhou is a very good example of a city, a coastal city that is affected by globalization. As you said, at the, you can see in the Trenjo Museum, the evidence of the foreign residents. Um, there's the many tombstones of people um, in Arabic, but there are also a lot of Indians in Trenjo. And you can see that in the um, some of the stones that uh, from preserved pieces of Hindu temples that no longer survive. Um, the big impact for, Ch the reason China is so important is that it's already a manufacturing center. And when we say manufacturing center, nowadays, I think people immediately think of a factory powered by electricity. Well, in the Sung, there's no electricity. I mean, there's electricity in the sky, right? Nobody, human, mankind has not figured out how to harness electricity, but there are huge workshops and kilns making ceramics. And the, I mentioned the ceramics from the shipwrecks because they're the thing that survive archeologically. Um, but we know that the Song Dynasty um, is also exporting metals, um, both metal objects like pots and knives and weapons, but also bars of um, iron and lead and tin. And uh, we also know that, um, the, so the China has these massive exports that they're carrying on Chinese ships. The Chinese have the compass, they've discovered the compass. So the ships can navigate even if it's cloudy or um, at night, uh, well, they're not sailing at night, but they, if, even if it's cloudy, they can use the compass to navigate. So that's China has these massive exports. 
Um, I think what people less often think about is the Chinese importing, how many things that they were bringing in. And um, as I talk about in the book and I talk about in Quanzhou, um, lots of people are craving, in Chinese, the word is xiang. And xiang is a very broad term in Chinese uh, because it means fragrant woods like sandalwood. Um, there's aloes wood. These all these woods that I, in the modern world we don't think about very much unless you happen to have a box made out of sandalwood, a fragrant box that you keep um, some jewelry in. Uh, but those people in the Sung were bringing in these fragrant woods. They were bringing in foods, uh, tastes, spices. Um, and uh, they're and bringing in met all of these natural products from Southeast Asia and also the Arabian Peninsula. And so there's this huge demand within China for these foreign goods. And that's what's fueling the trade. Now, you asked me about the Confucians. Um, the Confucians don't say that much about this trade. Uh, this is a case where the, um, the government is. Uh, and there's a historian, an American historian named Charles Hartman, who has just brought out a new book about Sung history. And one of his arguments is that there are two, two groups within the Chinese government. There's a group, a famous group we know about because they became Confucian thinkers. There's a less famous group of technocrats. A lot of the technocrats are linked to Wang Anshi that kind of person who, I mean, Wang Anshu also had things to say and was a philosopher, but um, the technocrat, someone who is looking at governance um, and just figuring out uh, what is the best way to, to tax the trade. And that's, I think, one of the things that's very interesting in the Sung is that there are innovations in how to tax um, the trade. And everyone knows about the tribute system, right? We've all studied that and it exists in the Tang. It exists in the Sung, but it kind of falls by the side that the government is spending much more of its energy on um, taxing ships that arrive in Chinese ports and collecting three kinds of taxes. So when a ship arrives, government officials go to the ship and there's only certain ports that have the bureaucracy to do this kind of taxation. And I talk about in Quanzhou how they handle this before they are recognized as a, a city that can do this kind of taxation. And, and there are parallels in later Chinese history, right? Of certain ports are designated. I mean, even now you would say like, where, where are there um, free trade zones? But historically, this, isn't, this is not a free trade zone. There are certain ports, the government, the ship pulls into port, the government officials get on the boat and then they take just a fixed percent and it changes it during the Song Dynasty, fixed percent of the ship's cargo. Then they look at what's left and then they say, oh, these are the goods we have a government monopoly on. Those are very sophisticated ideas about um, which goods need, should be sold by a monopoly and they confiscate a share of those. And then there's another category of goods that's called coarse goods um, and the Officials say, oh, these we care less about. So you, we're going to collect a tax on, we're going to take some of these, but you, the ship owner, can sell these in the port. And when you look at Song, Song Dynasty documents, you can see that officials are trying to decide how much taxation can they do. If they tax too much, merchants won't come again. If they tax too little, 
then the government doesn't have the revenues it needs. So that's that's very sophisticated. And I don't know of anything like that happening in other parts of the world in the year 1000. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great. Uh, it's fascinating to, to hear you talk about uh, uh, the, the vivid, uh, the, the live, uh, uh, the, you know, dynasty of the Song. I mean, uh, that was really, uh, uh, why you say it's the most globalized place in the world at that time, it's really, um, really uh, very uh, fascinating to, to, to review that. Actually, I, I, my, my father come from Hangzhou, you know, I mean, uh, there's, oh. uh, I, I see how the, the, that region now in China, even today, has revived very, very uh, strong, uh, a lot of a, a great tradition they, they have uh, uh, then. But also, of course, Chenzhou, as, as you mentioned, you know, already become one of the biggest port then uh, uh, in China, uh, probably in the world too. So, 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 how how does you know any lessons we can we can learn from from uh, from the Song Dynasty? You know, if they get so globalized, if they get so uh, uh, you know, uh, as you said, tax uh, 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 you know system is so advanced, and then keep a balance, not going to drive the merchant out, but also keep them. Uh, 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 motivated to, to, to do more business uh, uh, with, you know, foreign trade and things like that. But also, you know, Song has uh, have signed his Taiyuan uh, uh, Treaty, you know, with, uh, with Liao, and uh, they have managed to secure a very long period of time of uh, uh, security and peace. I had a dialogue with Graham Allison, I and mean, he has also, he's also fascinated by this, uh, this, this special treaty, and he may think that is one of exception that we can get out of the Hishiti's trap. So, uh, so, 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 what do you think about uh, China? Uh, of course, compare that, and maybe now, what lesson can we learn from the Song Dynasty? Maybe to uh, we can continue the, the globalization because China now is really facing a lot of, uh, uh, you know, of course, uh, uh, competition. But also, there's a there, there's a thinking. You know, China, as you, we talk about the ports, China now has the seven <laughs> largest port out of the ten in the world now, and. Uh, and also China trade is also doing good. But China is probably trying to restore its uh, uh, rightful place, maybe restore the Song Dynasty uh, glory that it used to have, you know, also population-wise, trade-wise, and uh, globalization uh, density. But China now today facing a lot of challenges. Uh, what do you think of those? And uh, any lesson we can learn or, or, or ben, uh, uh, historically we can, uh, we can draw from and, uh, and maybe how we can uh, continue the globalization, maybe compare the globalization now and uh, then. Uh, what are the similarities and what are the new challenges? I mean, those are uh, interesting questions. They are, they are interesting questions. I think one of the big differences between globalization then and, and, you know, my book is called The Beginning of Globalization, right? It's not, I'm not claiming in the year 1000 that globalization is fully developed. Uh, the I mean, in terms of the, like how many people in the world know about the whole globe, there's just a, probably a handful of geographers writing in Arabic who have a mental vision of the whole globe and, and know which parts of the globe are, have people on them. They don't know about the Americas, but they know, they know how, how big the globe is and they know how many of those places people are living in. Um, I think the big difference between globalization in the year 1000 and up to 1500 and today is that in the, my, the period I'm writing about, there are natural limits on, on uh, globalization. So I told you about the shipwreck that has the 930,000, excuse me, it's, it's from the year 930. It has 600,000 ceramics on it. Um, 
those ships, the reason we know about that is it sank. That ship, that ship sank in the Java Sea. Uh, now, so historically, it was possible for um, a country, an exporting country, to ex export a certain amount of goods, but never enough to overwhelm the, the local production. So archaeologists have found Chinese ceramics all along the coast, Southeast Asia, India, the Middle East, East Africa. You know, you talked about Zhenghe's route. Absolutely, the Chinese are active, you know, much earlier than Zhenghe on this route all the way from, I looked for a name for this, you know, the Guangzhou, Quanzhou to um, Mombasa route to East Africa, that route. Uh, but so the Chinese are goods, we can find Chinese goods. We know the Chinese goods were being sold all along those that route. Um, but we also know that local manufacturers were continuing to produce. And we know that archeologically because we can see copies of Chinese vessels. So we, there's a picture in my book of a Chinese vessel that was found in a city in, in Iran called Shush or historically Susa. Um, and then we have a local copy that's actually very inferior. The Chinese vessel is quite beautiful and has a clean white glaze. The local vessel has a kind of a bad glaze with cracks in it. Um, but so we know that local manufacturing continues. And that I think is one of the big changes from today where um, because of 747s, because of large cargo airplanes, one country can produce so much that it can take over the whole market of another country. And I think that's one of the things that we have to think about going forward with globalization. That, And I think that the pandemic has showed us this, that um, being entirely dependent on another country for any product is probably not a good long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, no, 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 agreed, uh, uh, absolutely. I, I think probably another <laughs> lesson we can learn is that, I mean, during the Song Dynasty, it's, it's so flourished and so, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, because they also secured a, a, a relative long period of the, of the peace uh, with the China Treaty, of course. And uh, uh, so, so for any globalization to really uh, have, a, have a, a great development, have a prosperity, have a, a peace is important probably. And uh, so <laughs> we need to really secure that peace and rather than we're getting the, a lot of conflict. And also we, another, another lesson probably we can learn is that the trade, the merchant, you know, really can probably secure the, uh, it can, can bond people and link people together. The, the business interests maybe uh, can, can really be, uh, be a, a common denominator to really to, to, to get people together. And of course, the, uh, we, we have some ideas, you know, uh, uh, religion and things like that to, uh, to, 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 uh, to really uh, make people understand each other better or, or at least know the culture. So. Uh, there's still many things we could learn from from history. I mean, also you know, uh, reading your book, we we, we find there's uh, uh, so many uh, interesting um, uh, lessons that uh, uh, that we can we can we can really uh, you know draw the lessons from. Uh, but but just coming back to the to the to the history, uh, since you are a historian, <laughs> a, a well known historian at, at the Yale, and so so what do you think about the this uh, this uh, this uh, confucianism maybe uh, you know i mean this may be a little bit uh, a border subject that i still want to come back because it it's certainly uh, you know if it's not globalization but 
the Confucianism has actually greatly influenced the, the region probably. You know, we, we, if we, we're not even not talking about cultural globalization, but then you can see the Tang Dynasty, the Japanese had a lot of students in, in Chang'an and, uh, and then we, we see, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the neighboring countries, Vietnam and all those other countries. So, so what do you think about uh, the regionalization uh, in Asia that, uh, that Confucianism can play some role? Of course, we had a Buddhism uh, influence China as well, where Xuanzang went to India to get that back. But what about uh, you know, Confucianism? Because it's still today, I think that the Confucianism still has a, a big influence, at least in China and, uh, and, and the greater China and probably uh, uh, Asia as well. So, so uh, what's your, what's your uh, 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 you know, assessment on that? Because you are a historian on, on East Asian culture as well. Well, I think one of the things that's very interesting about the year 1000 is you can see certain regions taking place. And actually you can see that earlier in the case when you talk about East Asia, right? That um, we have, I would say a very good example of soft power, of China's soft power that um, we have uh, Chinese characters moving, well, or I was gonna say the characters don't move by themselves, right? People in Korea and Japan, what's now modern Korea, modern Japan, modern Vietnam, all adopt the Chinese writing system. And there's a book market. That's I think one of the things that's very interesting in the year 1000 is that books are destroyed. There are, when, you know, Kaifeng falls, um, to the Jurchen, a lot of the imperial library is damaged, a lot of books are lost, and then they can be recovered because there are copies available in the Korea, on the Korean peninsula, um, in um, the Japanese, in Japan. So um, there are uh, very clear links among the different um, East Asian countries using Chinese characters. And, and of course, it means that texts can move and don't have to be translated. And in a period when translation is so um, expensive and slow, I mean, Kumar Jeev is a good example, right? That to be able to leave texts in their original languages um, is, uh, is very valuable. But uh, one of the things I think that's interesting about regions is that they can change. So, you know, we, we can look and say, oh, you know, it's perfect. There's this region of East Asia and China and Japan and Korea all have these similarities and Vietnam, these have, they have these similarities. Um, but if you go back to the year 1000, one of the things that's interesting about the Sung is that um, it's a very economically prosperous dynasty, but it's also a, geographically a small dynasty, right? The Sung, at first, I mean, they cede the 16 prefectures to the Liao, uh, but in the, in the, when the Jurchen, the Jin dynasty invade, all of North China comes under foreign rule. And so there's a, you could draw the regions um, in East Asia a little bit differently. And I try to do that in the book that there's a region where the territory under the Liao and the Jin has much more contact with Japan and Korea than it does with um, the Sung territory. And that's where we see there's this, that whole region, um, there's this idea that the world is gonna come to an end in 1052. And that idea um, is not, does not circulate in Sung China, but it does circulate among the Liao and in Japan um, and in Korea. So the, um, I think one of the things that we can see is that a country may belong to more than one region. 
You know, when we draw regions, we tend to think, oh, well, there's, you know, East, these countries belong in this region and these countries belong in that region. But when we look at the, how people in the past lived, you know, at one moment, they may see themselves as part of one region. And then in another movement, they may see themselves as part of another region. So mm -hmm. um, to me, that's one of the things that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very interesting to, to, to hear the, that uh, year 1000, that's where all, all the uh, probably uh, uh, the East Asian probably is, is taking some kind of a shape. And uh, as you rightly said, you know, uh, Chinese language has been used in, in, in Japan and, uh, and Korea or even Vietnam. And I, I read your book, you will even have a, a, a data center of all the, in Korea, of all the, you know, all the, all the books was as kind of a modern uh, an Asian data center where I collect all the, all the books in, in, in probably Chinese characters. So it's interesting to see that. And uh, so that does have a, 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 a regional impact. Maybe regionalism has been forming and, and culture and, and also Confucianism probably uh, played quite a big role there. And, uh, so, so I think that that's that's probably you can see uh, the, the the influence still on you know that the the, the East Asian culture uh, respect uh, seniors seniority they they pay a lot of attention to education they do a lot of uh, working pretty hard and then uh, and also of course uh, they are uh, also you know particularly for China it's a uh, uh, very peaceful I mean uh, very neutral they they uh, even when Zheng He you know uh, seven times expedition they never are conquered or or colonize any place. So, uh, so that that's interesting to, to see uh, uh, the, the culture that uh, that uh, that is evolving and uh, hopefully. Oh, let me, I, I, if you will allow me, I, I will disagree with you about Zheng He that most of the time is peaceful, but there are times where the Chinese intervene in um, the local the succession disputes in mm -hmm. countries where. So um, the uh, I think the. Nowadays in, in China, Zheng He is often described as um, a very peaceful explorer. But when you look at sources from the time, um, it was usually peaceful trade. It, it was a huge shock to many places to have so many people arrive on the ships, right? Zheng He's fleet at its fullest has 28,000 people are, are arriving in a place that may not have enough food for that many people. Um, and the and we we have historic evidence that um, there are a king will die a king who was um, loyal you know had um, sent uh, a tribute mission to China he dies uh, a son takes over and the Chinese don't um, approve of that son and then they intervene so uh, you know I would yeah. say mostly peaceful for Zheng He no but at least they haven't really conquered uh, any place uh, and stay there forever. <laughs> Or even you know that even 100 years before Columbus. So 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 I think yeah yeah right. I mean you know at least largely peaceful. Uh, it's uh, right. But but what I'm what I'm what I'm thinking is that uh, of course uh, uh, this this culture you know that uh, where uh, China is uh, is having is is basically uh, quite peaceful historically. And uh, so we hope that uh, we, we are talking about globalization. We're talking about uh, a thousand years of globalization. How we can really continue the globalization. And uh, so probably we can talk a bit about uh, you know contemporary <laughs> globalization. So what do you think about the globalization uh, now? And uh, as you are already a historian on, on the globalization, uh, and uh, already we had a thousand years of globalization. And uh, so what's your what's your uh, uh, prediction or, 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 
future look of the of the globalization and uh, what are the uh, challenges and opportunities and uh, or even some other uh, other events we should really be be look for technology or people uh, 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 migration or uh, 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 you know uh, any other uh, trade or whatever you know digital economy. I, 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 you know, I know you are not an economist, but but even from historical point of view, maybe we can we can look at past, but we can also look at future uh, to some extent. Well, I think one thing we can learn from the past. For, I'm convinced that uh, globalization uh, began in the year 1000 and on a worldwide basis, and that it's here to stay. I, I think it's part of the human condition um, and. I think the motivation for globalization is that people want new things. Sometimes it's new ideas, but often it's very specific commodities. And there's, um, in my book, I write about when the Vikings arrived in what's now Canada, that um, there, so, and, and there are other encounters like this, but the one with the Vikings is better documented. We have a good description of it. They arrive, they meet the local people, the, um, uh, the First Nations, the, the indigenous peoples of Canada. And the two groups look at each other, and this happens in lots of different places. They look at each other and think, well, what do those people have that we don't have? Oh, you know, you have that nice, I mean, they look at the Vikings, they say, oh, you have this red cloth. We don't have that red cloth. That's something we really want. And the Vikings look at them and they say, oh, you have these furs. You have these fabulous furs um, from animals we've never seen. We want those. And they begin to trade. And that, I think, that human impulse is something that underlies globalization a thousand years ago and today, too. The same thing that people go into a store and they see something they've never seen before and think, oh, I have to have that. And that's true in Quanzhou in the year 1000. Oh, there's, you know, I, I, this fragrant wood from Southeast Asia is so wonderful. I'm going to build a whole room out of this wood. It's that important to me. So that's something we can see that that motivation for globalization starts very early and it's on an individual basis. People's desire for these new things. Um, but we can also see very early on that some people were affected adversely by this trade. And um, one of the things that I was very interested in when I was researching the book was anti-globalization riots, where mm -hmm. we have um, in Cairo in 996, in Constantinople in um, the uh, 11, early 1180s, uh, these reactions against foreign merchants, where you have local people saying, oh, these people are just so much richer than our local merchants. They live in nicer houses. Um, they've taken our women as their wives. And so, you know, I think from the very beginning with globalization, we can see people benefiting from globalization, but we can also see people who are actively harmed by it and who object to it and, and want to control it. And so for me, thinking about the future of globalization, um, I think the question is, can we, how can we control these forces? And the, um, I, I was, what, you know, I read your interview with Tom Friedman, he was on this show, right? And um, talking about that individual governments may not be, I mean, I, I was gonna say, so globalization by itself, if you just let it go, 
it, it just keeps growing, right? And so then now in the modern world, we look at it and we think, oh, maybe we should take advantage of globalization, but make sure that people who've lost their jobs because of globalization have some kinds of protection. Um, and, you know, the, um, I think the, the issue for us going forward is figuring out ways for governments to cooperate with each other so that they can lessen the negative impact of globalization. And you know, you, you and Tom Friedman talked about the United Nations is really not that strong a body for this, right? We, I, I think we, and I, I don't know, I, I'm a historian, I'm not good at looking at the future, you're better at that than I am. Um, but you, you know, do, do you see any avenues forward, you know, going forward for greater cooperation among different governments or of the, in different places? Yeah, I think you, you raised a very uh, uh, interesting question. Also, you have a, give a very good, uh, I think, uh, analysis as well, because uh, I think early globalization, probably people trading for diff different goods, different uh, benefits, and, uh, you know, really supplementary each other. Uh, that's where the, uh, the original uh, motivation of the, you know, trade and exchange of uh, all those, uh, uh, you know, good quality uh, products. That, that's really drive for a long time, of course. But, but as you said, once the globalization uh, is fully on the, on, on, on the speed, uh, that has generated a lot of wealth, but also a lot of a, a gap, a widening gap as well. Particularly with today, you know, we, we see, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the gap between rich and the poor is getting wider and wider now. Even during the pandemic is getting wider and wider. And then yet, uh, uh, I, I was talking to uh, uh, Martin Wolf of Financial Times. Uh, he said, uh, you know, the globalization is, uh, is, is global, but then democracy is local. So, mm -hmm. so, so the local, uh, you know, government public cannot control the, the global uh, magnitudes of the, of the mass movement of the trade and the, and the talent and the capital and the, all those things. So, so, so Tom Sweetman is right, you know, probably we, we, we need the global governance, but also uh, we're not yet reached global government yet. Uh, so we, so I think we just, you know, we have to come back to the multilateralism, strengthen the multilateralism, rather than we go unilateralism and uh, fighting with each other. So, so it's really uh, one review this uh, this uh, fascinating history of uh, globalization. I think when globalization was uh, was at the at, at the infant at the start, it's manageable. You know, the, it's uh, it's uh, uh, it's still uh, not a huge impact. But when globalization already gone into such a full swing and affect everyone's life, then probably how to have an inclusive globalization and, uh, and equal globalization, it's probably all the governments should really think about, particularly I think we need to strengthen the uh, UN system and uh, multilateral system. We may also have to invent some new governance uh, for the multilateral system to, to do that. Uh, for example, how we can uh, have the tax, uh, fair tax for, not only for the home country, but the host country, uh, but also, you know, uh, how can we move people around, uh, knocking down those, uh, those uh, barriers and, uh, and uh, nationalism, you know, because the internet is, is beyond borders, but then if we have so, too much nationalism, populism, that is going to set back globalization. So it's really a, a catch 22, we have to uh, uh, really solve that. So, so I think the, the discussion we have today uh, is really, meaningful is that we 
we look at the, uh, uh, the, the success of globalization, the origin of globalization, and uh, how it went so far, but also we, we try to uh, uh, solve the, uh, uh, the challenges and, uh, and meet the, uh, all those uh, uh, you know, new tasks of globalization. So, so it's, it's really uh, fascinating to talk about. So uh, you, 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 your book, The Soap Road, The New History with, uh, with Document, which is a, a famous book now. And uh, so the Soap Road, I mean, at that time, as you said, it was, uh, was because of the economic conditions, because of uh, no modern transportation, basically no infrastructure. So, so that cannot be, uh, you know, such a long distance of land uh, masses cannot really uh, expedite, uh, 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 you know, speed up the globalization. But now we have uh, uh, infrastructure, you know, China is also developing that uh, quickly in the last four decades. So China has actually, uh, you know, uh, started this uh, global initiative of a Silk Road, uh, no, Belt and Road. And uh, so, so the globalization, uh, you know, I mean, for the last 75 years, we have the trade boom, we had the uh, economic boom. But for the next 75 years after Second World War, you know, can we really have an infrastructure revolution? So have a modern infrastructure soap road, and uh, and and how can we really uh, make Belt and Road work? And uh, and uh, you know, let's revive some of the soap road spirit, and uh, and to, to 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 do that. Maybe I don't know if you have any uh, uh, thought or comments on that, um, because the soap road is. Uh, I mean, Chinese uh, Belt and Road has a lot of inspiration taken from uh, the historical Silk Road. And of course, there's many other uh, routes that, uh, you know, Eurasia or, you know, Spice Road and whatever, you know, let's uh, combine them, make a more uh, multilized uh, uh, global uh, trend uh, for the future. Oh, yeah, I, I share your the, the positive spirit. I do think as a Silk Road historian that um, it's important to remember when we talk about the period of the Silk Road that um, the Chinese also have a military presence in Central Asia. So that um, it's the, and the reason silk is uh, moving, there's so much silk in Central Asia is because the currency of the Tang Dynasty, there's a chronic shortage of coins. So the Tang have uh, three kinds of currencies, grain, um, so grain in fixed measures, uh, coins, which they don't have enough of, the whole money supply of the Tang is about 10% coins, uh, and then silk. And the silk is actually, when I think when we think about it now, it doesn't seem like a very good currency, but it was actually pretty good. It, it, um, the, it held its value, and uh, it was in some cases lighter than the coins. You know, in terms because the, with the Silk Road, the constraint is overland travel and carrying things overland. And um, I think you're right about modern infrastructure is different. High-speed trains and high-quality highways are these did not, nothing like that existed um, in the past. But um, but I think when we think about the Silk Road, that there are periods when the Chinese have a strong military presence in Central Asia. And then after 755, after the Anlushan Rebellion, there are periods where the Chinese are much less present um, in Central Asia. And uh, those periods may be the periods that tell us the most about the possibilities for multilateralism, where we can see um, political units of roughly the same size 
um, cooperating with each other. So for example, the rulers of Dunhuang and the rulers of Khotan have a lot of exchanges. Neither of them is a giant state the way that the Tang Dynasty is. There, there, aren't, um, there aren't that many examples in the past of giant states successfully cooperating with smaller states. And you know, when we, when we talk about the Treaty of Chanyuan, that is very important because the Chinese, the Chinese make some concessions to the Liao and um, the peace lasts for a hundred years. But at the same time that the Sung are not fighting with the Liao, they are fighting with the Tangas, the, with the Xixia. There is constant war during this. So, you know, the Sung is, they, they don't achieve their goal of perfect peace. Um, so uh, I guess I would say that the uh, things are complicated. <laughs> are complicated now yeah, things yeah. were complicated in the past yeah i i, I think that uh, yeah uh, uh, historically uh, you know that uh, uh, even though the the, the sogro already started uh, of course even though it's not that huge distance but then you know across the uh, the, the the time and also the distance there were there were a spirit of of of, of trade and uh, you know exchanges and things like that but I, I, I really think now uh, we had uh, uh, the, the marine globalization, uh, which I, I, you dis rightly described, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, year, uh, around year 1000. But now probably we, we, we will have a land, a continental globalization because where infrastructure is, uh, is possible now. Uh, for example, last year, the, uh, the, the, the intercontinental chain between China and uh, Asia and, and, and China and Europe has increased 50 times, uh, 50 percent, mm -hmm. and uh, you know the dispatches of 12,000, uh, 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 you know, uh, cohort of uh, of uh, trains uh, back and forth. So, so that's that's incredible. And uh, uh, whereas the containers now are, are in great shortage now because of uh, so many uh, shifted the, the, uh, to 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 Europe but not coming back. So, what 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 I'm thinking is that uh, you know maybe maybe we are having a uh, 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 now a new demand of uh, even stronger uh, for the exchanges of the of the of the of the good and trade and and that's really uh, the stabilizer for the peace and and the security. So so I hope that uh, we can build up this infrastructure. I think whereas China now built this infrastructure for the last four decades, now China has the uh, 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 high speed uh, railway. The total length of that is equals to the next ten countries combined. I mean anywhere you go is a few hours now. So that has greatly helped China, you know, uh, uh, with one billion smartphone users and uh, uh, lifted 800 million people out of poverty. So, so infrastructure is really probably the, a big drive for the for the next phase of globalization, coupled with technology and things like that. So we hope that uh, uh, with, we can work out with uh, with uh, you know China has also has Asian uh, infrastructure investment bank, which is most um, uh, multilized. Uh, uh, acceptable uh, global uh, bank, uh, where all the countries are in it except U.S. But 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 India is the largest recipient. So this is really a great public uh, model, and I hope that you can play more role uh, in in a Belt and Road Initiative for 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 Asia and uh, and the connectivity. So uh, so this is really uh, uh, interesting. But 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 again, I I, I want to uh, raise a, another question: is that uh, uh, the, because you are a historian, a well-known historian, and uh, uh, the the uh, the Chinese uh, history, of of course, uh, you know, the first time for for 
for many people to know that the Song Dynasty is uh, is really the the most globalized uh, uh, you know uh, place in the world, one of the mobilized. And at that time, you know, the, the I have I've seen some figures, you know, that uh, it was the run of the peak time in China when there's a, a also a commodity economy, a culture, education, science, and has all reached a relatively uh, height at that time. And also it's, it's count about 22% of the global uh, GDP then. And then, uh, but, but you are right, you know, it's uh, 30, 40% of the global population. So probably, you know, I mean, since we're talking about 1000 years uh, of globalization, uh, where, where, where Song Dynasty is a great place to, uh, to, to, to be representative. Maybe you could give us a, a still some, uh, 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 you know, description on, on those, uh, on this subject. About the, the globalization in the Song. Um, I think the, to me, we haven't talked about this yet, but to me, one of the hallmarks of globalization is that people who produce something can't control, can't control, don't even see the market where their goods go. So that I think that's why people have this feeling today the, um, of things being out of control, right? That they make something and they don't know where it's going or who, who is buying it. And um, in the Sung, we can see that, that we have the, this massive production of on the coast of, uh, ceramics, we have metal mining in Chinese mining, we have Chinese textiles. These things are all leaving China and traveling to Southeast Asia or India, the Middle East, East Africa. Uh, and people in China don't know that much about where those things are going. And the same thing is true of the people that they're trading with, that um, people that all of these natural products that are coming from Southeast Asia, uh, we have descriptions of uh, people, the forest peoples, the forest dwelling peoples, um, you know, who lived uh, basically hunting and gathering are suddenly having to produce for, produce in the sense of having to hunt and gather for a foreign market. Um, and for example, kingfisher birds with the blue feathers, uh, that this is a, 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 an, uh, an import that the Chinese value enormously. But imagine somebody living in a forest in Indonesia, uh, collecting, hunting these birds or, and, and then bringing them to some kind of broker. Uh, and then the, this, this feather trade is very important in the year 1000. So um, that I think is something that maybe, you know, we're, we're in a modern world we can see things, we can know more because of information, the, free, the freer movement of information. We can know more about distant markets, but that the impact of distant markets that you know, one year you can sell a huge amount of some good and then the next year the market collapses and you don't know why. And then all, the market has collapsed and all of those people have lost their jobs. That's something I think that um, is worth thinking about as you know going forward, how how we can harness information uh, so that we can mitigate these th this the damage of globalization. Yeah, uh, I I think that uh, also one of the characteristics I think at the Song even probably before then uh, Tang that the China is also quite open. You know we had we had a Buddhism actually coming to China. We had also. Right. 
uh, Christianity coming to China, Islamic coming to China. So, so that probably also contributed to the, to the openness of the dynasty. And then that's where, you know, China uh, becomes so uh, developed uh, uh, at that time. And, you know, uh, one of the largest economy, uh, probably the largest economy in the world then. And, uh, and that's where globalization is most, uh, uh, you know, uh, happened at the Song Dynasty uh, during that time in the world. So, so I, I think when we review that uh, history is uh, probably one of the things we can think about is that we, we, we should continue to open uh, we could, we should uh, get more, uh, you know, uh, uh, open to accept, you know, also uh, welcome all the uh, different uh, culture and maybe uh, trying to uh, to learn from each other, and so that we the Song can and also the history uh, in Tang Dynasty as well can contribute to the uh, to the other parts of the world as well, and uh, and also the Confucianism actually getting taking a strong hold actually uh, during the Song Dynasty, where where I think the uh, uh, the, 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 the then uh, the government is really uh, practiced quite quite a bit then and then uh, making it more uh, widely accepted in China. So so all those elements probably played uh, some role uh, in 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 promoting the globalization at the Song Dynasty possibly. Yes, I think that's true. I think that the um, the and and I I personally um, find the exchange of information, especially in this early period, um, the, the, the free exchange of information, um, quite inspiring. And there's a person I um, talk about in the book named Al Biruni, and he um, is in India, he's an advisor to um, a ruler. Well, he, he's, he's in India, he's based in Afghanistan, and some envoys come from the Liao to visit his ruler and he has a chance to talk to them and to learn about North China. And he actually, he learns a lot about South China too. And he writes about um, China in Arabic and, um, and he writes about the encounter between his ruler and the envoy from the Liao dynasty. Uh, unfortunately, his ruler, the Liao send an envoy and uh, they, this is in 1026 or 1027, um, and they want to initiate uh, a diplomatic relations with him. And the ruler Mahmud of Ghazna says no. But so that I think we should not take any lessons from that. Um, I, I think that's an example of close-mindedness. But um, his his advisor Al Biruni talks to the the envoys from the Liao dynasty and uses that chance to learn more about China. And so um, I agree with you. I think that that's got to be the way forward is to try to learn from each other, you know, from other, one country has to learn from other countries and from people in those other countries about how those societies function. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Uh, so so we're actually, uh, <laughs> we, we talk about over an hour now. We still have a bit of time, but uh, uh, finally, we, we have we have collected some questions, uh, you know, uh, as a, as a routine of our series of dialogue. Uh, so we have some questions from uh, from Chinese media and, and scholars as well. Uh, one of the one of the scholar actually from uh, from Peking University, he he uh, he, he wrote that uh, he was saying that uh, uh, the uh, the uh, the Vikings' voyage to North American uh, should be compared with other important events before it in history, such as human beings migration from African to other continents, or Arabs expansion to West Asia, North Asia, and South Europe in the seventh, eighth century. So, 
So what about, uh, you know, the question that one of the scholar raised? I, I also have some uh, media question after that, maybe. The, um, there is, there, I mean, it's funny, of course there's overland migration um, mm -hmm. in different periods. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> there are people who think globalization began earlier than 1000. There's a group of scholars who argue it began in 3000 BC because you can see um, lapis lazuli from Pakistan in Mesopotamia. So they point to these connections of this movement of trade goods earlier. Uh, I was gonna say the first people who get to Australia get there in 40,000 BC, 40, 000, sorry, 40,000 BP, 40,000 years before the present. So there's always migration. Right, that uh, overland migration. And some of that has to do with the changing land masses, like people coming into the Americas maybe 15,000 years ago across what's it's now Alaska and the Bering Straits um, historically. And so there's an ocean separating Alaska from Russia now. Historically, there was a land bridge. So, um, you know, I've, there, I'm in response to that question. Yes, there's migration. Um, but the scale of migration increases a lot um, because of this uh, in, in the year 1000. The slave trade, um, there's a slave trade from Africa, from actually Northern Europe, from Central Asia into the Islamic world. And um, it starts, uh, you know, it's, it, it predates the year 1000, but it accelerates in the year 1000. So when you look around the world, you can see the there are precursors to the things I'm talking about, but there's a real change in the year 1000. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. So that's uh, that's uh, uh, you know explain uh, uh, your 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 case uh, uh, well. I, I think that uh, uh, year 1000 is probably the, the time that uh, uh, you know particularly uh, all those uh, three continents and then in China the Song Dynasty where that that is the the peak at that time the globalization really get get on the on the speed now and probably before that as uh, as we mentioned you know there could be migration here and there and it could be so growth uh, uh, you know started even longer than that uh, but but I think accelerated uh, the, the the beginning of, of year thousand uh, I have another question from from China daily actually uh, uh, how could the world overcome the difficulties facing globalization and how can we achieve more balanced global, uh, development in a world of post-pandemic? So this is really a contemporary question for you. We actually now have uh, over 600,000, uh, 700,000 viewers online right now. My staff just showed me. So, so you, the topic is really interesting, yeah. Oh, I'm very glad to hear this, but I'm also feeling a lot of pressure. I, I have to confess that um, I, I don't have an answer to um, go, to going forward. Uh, the, I mean, I, I guess the best answer I can give is to say that those of us, like you and I, who've benefited from globalization, uh, and I said, you know, we're we're products of globalization, right? The um, uh, I think we have to think more about people who are not benefiting from globalization. And, and, uh, and I think about, uh, if, for example, in America, and I don't know the number, you're very good on your numbers, I'm not that good. Uh, but I think, I forget the number of people who don't have a passport, mm. who've never gone um, 
I mean, you know, who've never left the country. And, and maybe you know for China, how many people have never left China, right? That, so for people, so I, in some ways I feel like we're, we're living in two worlds that um, there's a world where we can, uh, there's a group of people who can travel pre-pandemic, travel freely and study in different countries um, and ha have the wealth to do that. And then there's another world of people who are really struggling to survive. And um, I think as we, as we go forward, I think, I think we've got to be thinking about balancing the needs of those two groups. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I don't remember how many <laughs> Chinese has a passport. Maybe I, I, I remember seeing a number of some 200, 300 million, but I, I know there's a number that Chinese has outbound tourists uh, mm. uh, before the pandemic has reached uh, 100 million, 150 billion. That's uh, uh, quite a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, probably compared with US, the, the Chinese people who, there's 200 million people, million people in China study English. I mean, at least, right. you know, so, so, so uh, uh, 200 million, 280 million, according to the latest uh, population consensus, are college graduates or are still in a college. Uh, mm. So knows, knows some somewhat uh, international language. So, so it shows that China now is uh, getting a bit more uh, more looking, uh, uh, you know, to the world now. But I agree with you that uh, uh, the challenge we are having with the future of globalization is really how to shrink this gap. Uh, as yeah. I had another conversation with uh, Angus Deaton, uh, a mm. professor from Princeton University. I mean, uh, basically, he tells me a Nobel laureate. He tells me that. Uh, the life expectancy, according to their study, in the United States, has actually dropping <laughs> in the last two or three years because there's more people felt they are not really benefiting from globalization. But then, uh, you know, whereas the one percent of the uh, of the most wealthy people is equal to almost 40, 50 percent of the general right. mass population in the U.S. now, and that's that's where is the challenge. And then. And probably China shouldn't be the, the, the scapegoat for that. So, so I hope that uh, uh, there, there's a, you know, if we all concentrate on our own domestic issues, we solve that uh, infrastructure, uh, lifting poverty, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, taking care of its people, then maybe we'll have a, a bit better, uh, 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 you know, uh, dialogue among ourselves rather than we really uh, blame each other, probably. Yeah. So, so yes. that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have another question for you, you know, uh, because uh, people know you're coming and from China Radio International. Uh, basically, uh, the question was, if you are supposed to tell young people of this era about the three major events, except for the two world wars uh, that changed the world during the past 100 years, what, what would be the uh, uh, choice? And uh, uh, I guess, you, you, I don't know if you want to say uh, pandemic or <laughs> is there any... Uh, other things the, yeah. the, the, the last 100 years? Yes, three things he wants to list. I mean, uh, 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 you know, if, uh, if, if World War I, World War II is, is two event, or, or you may have other choice, but, uh, but for me, I would say pandemic probably, yeah. Well, right now it feels like the pandemic, right? We, but, you know, if the pandemic, there's some, there are some, there are some pandemics in the past that the, the effects lasted for hundreds of years. The Black Death in Europe mm -hmm. in 1348, 
lasted for, you know, the, the impact of that, uh, people think a third of Europe's population died. And, uh, you know, there is an argument that the industrial revolution happens in Europe because the Europe's population is short, is small, and they need labor saving devices. So right now, I think it's very hard. I, I speak as a medievalist. I, I, work on, I work on the world a thousand years ago. Um, the events from the last, it's funny, I, I remember having a conversation with, about this um, you know, with my father who, who died um, about 10 years ago. And uh, the, the things that affected people, uh, things like the invention of electricity, right? The coming of electricity to people's houses, that may, that's a little bit before 1920. Right, you're. I'm supposed to think about things since 19, 1921. Um, the but uh, the telephone, right? I mean, you know, something you and I have lived through is um, the watching the ubiquity of seeing the ubiquity of telephones, right? That and and that you can. Call, I mean, you and I are. This is a free call we're having, right? When I was a student, once a month I would go, you know, to a pay phone and call my father. Uh, you know, and, and and it was very expensive. So, um, so I I think the um, I, I think the invention of the computer has to has to be um, something that's affected many many people. Um, the you know I, I'm just uh, that uh, I was going to say some things about food supply, right? About you know the green revolution. Is that I don't know that we have a specific date, but um, Yuan Longping has just died. That's something that um, I think has had a huge impact. So, um, you know, in in some ways, I think those things had greater impact than the world wars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. You talk about those great inventions and also the the contributions, uh, you know, of of those great. Uh, 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 you know, expert like like uh, uh, you know uh, like Mr. Yuan Longping <laughs> just you know, last right. week passed away. But absolutely, you know, <laughs> uh, the the agricultural revolution, right? I mean that that lifted the. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it contributed significantly in lifting 800 million people out of poverty and even worldwide on that. Yes, so even worldwide. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's really uh, a, a key question. So the second question from them is that. Uh, uh, what key principles and spirits of East Asian, East Asian and traditional Confucian culture uh, should be better promoted, recognized, and play a bigger role uh, in contemporary time? So basically, a little similar uh, to the to the discussion, uh, they, they they really felt you are expert on <laughs> on the Chinese culture and, and East Asia culture. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm a prof college professor, so it, it won't surprise you to hear that I think education is important. Um, I think, actually, I think in America, people have a pretty good sense that of the East Asian respect for education, right? And, and we can see that with um, Chinese immigrants coming to America, that um, they're often uh, em emphasize education, their children do well in school. If you, um, I mean, you may know about this in New York, there's a test to get into the public high schools, the state funded high schools. Um, and classically, the, the highest number of people who doing well on that test, the, the, sorry, the largest ethnic group to do well on that test is our Chinese people. So that I think is something people know in the world about um, Asia. I think people in um, America and Europe 
still, and I think this is entirely understandable, have a Eurocentric view of the past. Um, in the same way, I think people in China have a Sinocentric view of the past. Um, I'm part of a project now um, on that's interested in the history of printing. And if you talk to the average, well, if you ask the average American when printing began, I'm not sure they're going to name Gutenberg, but I think they'll they'll say, oh, it's movable type, it's the Renaissance, um, and you know that's just factually not true. Right? There is printing in China um, starting. Well, I was going to say the the date. It's around 700 because the earliest printed materials we have have characters from um, I call her Emperor Wu, Empress Wu of the Tang Dynasty, Wu Zetian. Um, that uh, um, so you know we have some individual sheets of paper that were printed, um, and there's a debate about whether printing starts in China or Japan or Korea. Um, but that's 700 years earlier than Gutenberg. And that's something I think that people in the rest of the world don't really realize. And so um, that's something I'm working on now with a very large group of people, uh, a very fun group of people. Um, the, um, some of the, the earliest surviving examples of movable type books are from Korea. Um, and so uh, and those are from the, it's, it's I was going to say, a, a classic modern phenomenon. Um, the book is from the 1370s. The earliest, the earliest book printed with movable type was made in Korea, and it's in a French library. It's in the National, Bibliothèque Nationale. So, um, you know, the, I think getting that news out is something that would maybe help people to understand about um, understand better the history of East Asia. And as you said, the book markets, that book markets were in the pre-modern world, really the kind of, you had a good word for this, a data center, a data center for um, people at that time. And, yeah. and book markets are important in Europe too, but the things are, the, the book markets start earlier in um, Asia than they do in Europe. I think that's something most people don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, very, uh, very fascinating. I mean, uh, to hear you talk about that, you know, I mean, education, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, that's also uh, the former ambassador of US in China, Terry Bernstein told me the same, you know, Chinese attached a great importance of family, uh, no, education, family values, but also uh, hardworking as well. So that he attributed the success of China to uh, those three factors. But I, but I, I think that uh, you, you, you are having this new project uh, of, of this, uh, uh, where all those typing coming from and uh, what's the history of that would be really a great one. Because that's where I, I, I think your book has, has outlined many, many uh, concrete examples and events to back up the, uh, the, 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 the theory. So, so uh, that's uh, interesting me uh, uh, greatly. So, so I think we, we are almost time and uh, we had a, a very uh, fascinating discussion uh, tonight and, and, uh, and in your time uh, morning in, in Yale. But, uh, but also, uh, uh, the, uh, I think we have reviewed uh, the history of uh, globalization, where the, you propose this uh, globalization uh, started really uh, in full, you know, uh, uh, at the very uh, obvious uh, stage, uh, it started with year 1000. And that's another five years be be before uh, the Columbus uh, discovered the American uh, uh, continent. But also uh, the Song Dynasty uh, is one of the most globalized places in the world at that time. And, uh, and China is one of the biggest import then, and China uh, uh, has the largest population of 100 million 
during the year 1000 uh, time. So all those are really uh, fascinating uh, discussions. I, I, I really found a lot of interest. I think, you know, we, we, we need to review that history. We need to, uh, you know, summarize what has, uh, has done well. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of human nature, spirit, culture, uh, uh, ingredient are still the same. But, but the, the, the format and the technology and the, uh, the transformation has been uh, uh, changing uh, again and again. And, and, and now we are facing a lot of challenges, deglobalization, populism, nationalism. Uh, we're, we're, we're in a globalized world that cannot, you know, uh, keep it uh, together now. We, we, we have to really uh, re revisit the hi history with wisdom and, then, uh, and also find a new solution uh, particularly solving these uh, inequality issues, and uh, and also uh, let's have a, a, a openness, you know, openness, uh, continue to open. That, that's really important. So, so I think it's really a great discussion we have, and uh, I really appreciate uh, your, your your time. But but also I, I would like to you to say a few words uh, to conclude uh, as a final remark as well. Oh, that that's very generous of you. I, I didn't expect you to say that. Uh, the uh... I, as you were talking, I was thinking that in the beginning of globalization, I think the forces of globalization are much weaker than they are now, right? There are um, the people who were directly affected by foreign trade is smaller than now. There, historically, there was a huge slave trade. I write about that in the book. It doesn't really affect China. That's, a, that's an interesting question about why there doesn't seem to be um, there, there are not so many slaves in China as there are in the um, Islamic world. Uh, so, um, the, uh, but I was going to say, from, the forces of globalization are weaker, but we can already see that it's adversely affecting some people so much that they riot, right? And they kill the foreign merchants who are living in Cairo um, and in Constantinople. There's the Huangqiao Rebellion. You know, where there's the massacre of the Arab merchants who are living in Guangzhou and the death toll is debated, right? We have two Arabic sources. One says 80,000, one says 120,000. Um, I just read an article that said, which was interesting, that all of these numbers, you should just divide by 10. I, I have never read this. So maybe 8,000 people died or 12,000 people died. It's still a lot of people um, who died in these riots. And so um, I think... I guess my, my view, and, and I may romanticize the past a little bit, I hope not, um, is that the forces of globalization were weaker in the beginning um, around the year 1000, and that the checks that existed in the year 1000, like the risks of shipping and the high number of shipwrecks, the costs of overland trade, which meant that very there just wasn't that much trade going overland because it costs so much to ship things. and, and you know, camel caravans could get um, could get lost. People died. They could be robbed. Um, all of those checks, um, I think, are were stronger in the past than they are now. And um, I think as we go forward, we have to think about what kinds of checks that we may need to institute to try to balance. Well, we talked about this today. Balance the impact of globalization. The pandemic, in a way, is a check, right on the on the process of globalization. Just like, oh, okay, we've had you know over a year to think very hard about this world we live in and how we're gonna go forward in the future. 
And um, I, I think you're going to have to find a futurologist, not a historian, to tell uh, you about that. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with you. I think that the, the, the globalization is very resilient and, of course, uh, full of vitality and its own uh, uh, momentum. And, of course, there, there will be uh, setbacks and uh, 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 zigzags, but, but the trend will continue. I mean, it's not linear, but uh, it will certainly be... Uh, be a future trend. I think, as you already said, you know, globalizing one initially, there was so many, uh, not many people get benefit of that. But now it's, uh, you know, massively, uh, just imagine 200 uh, Chinese people are, are learning English and also uh, 150 million people uh, from China touring around the world. Uh, globalization is, is here to stay. And then uh, China become the largest trading with 130 countries. And, mm -hmm. and, and of course, and, uh, and actually, uh, so, so, so I, I think that uh, the globalization with more inclusive globalization will continue. And then that is really, we need a multilateralism, we need a, a you know, a peace, peaceful coexistence. And we have to learn, with each, uh, learn to live with each other peacefully. I mean, that's probably uh, the lesson we also learn from globalization as well. So, so once again, thank you very much. And uh, I hope when you come to China, we will, we'll, We'll see you again and also invite you to, to speak at CCG. And actually tonight we had about 800,000 people <laughs> watched us from different portals and uh, social media. So thank you very much, Professor Hansen, and uh, it was nice talking to you. Thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate your taking the time to prepare such a careful interview. Um, it was really a pleasure, Professor Wah. Okay, thank you, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye, okay, thank you. Thank you for the audience as well. Thank you very much.
Great, great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. You said something very profound there. We are, we are all human beings. We are, we are all living in the same planet. We, we are all global villagers. We need to look for a, a better future and also manage our differences and coexist peacefully and strive for the better future. Thank you so much for, for taking time talking to us. Thank you very much, Martin. Yeah. Appreciate great it. Great pleasure. Thank you. Great. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you all for, for our audience as well. Thank you.